so soon after the the record well, I don't know how soon after but not too long afterwards you decided to go out on your own become a solo artist well you know what here's 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 how that happened uh there's a saying that the struggle to succeed never breaks up a band success breaks up a band mm. once we became successful uh Every one of us had our own little cap. You don't need these guys. And this band wouldn't be nothing without you. And da 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 da. This right. is stuff you're hearing in your ear. And so, next thing you know, we start pulling away from each other. And it got to the point that we just broke up. Do you, now, looking back on, do you regret that, or do you think it was just meant to be? Oh, I think if we'd have waited another two or three years, because we were we were right set to go with. Uh, Gamble and Huff was going to produce us, and we had all these great producers that were ready to step in and bring us the right songs and get the right record. So we'd had a nice body of work on, on, on uh, recordings. I got offered a thing on Broadway. The people who did Hair wanted me to do Tarzan. And the body I had back in them days, I was just a skinny guy then. I said, I can't stand up there in a loincloth. <laughs> On Broadway. <laughs> you were a good-looking man back then. No, man, but I was skinny. I didn't have a chest. I didn't have any... I am I said, yeah, I look like I just got out of a, some sort of a, a starvation camp or something. <laughs> and I would have to try to keep weight on. Right. I, I could not keep weight on because I danced all the time. And uh, so I said, nah. But that's a young guy making stupid choices mm -hmm. not stupid choice but uninformed choices i didn't have anybody go sunny do it just do it and see how it works and uh you could have opened up a whole different thing but to look back on it my life has been good so yeah i mean you have to go with the gut too right yeah if you felt that that wasn't the right thing to do yeah i just didn't feel comfortable doing it and and um so i went i went with that feeling you know but you did solo work, and then you also wrote some songs for your solo stuff. Right? I wrote I wrote songs. Uh, I guess probably my favorite writing was Elvis did. I wrote a song with a guy named Michael Jarrett, who lives up in Idaho right now. But uh, he and I wrote this song uh, called "I'm Leaving," and it was one of Elvis's singles. So uh, okay, so I heard I heard that there was a rule that if Elvis recorded songs, that you would have to write, he would get some writing credit. Is that correct? No, he didn't get the writing credit. He got the publishing. Oh, okay. <laughs> so. Well, you know what? To, I, w I made more money off that. I still get paid for it. I'm still getting Elvis money. Oh, nice. Elvis is alive. <laughs> but, you know, uh, it's not as much as it was back in those days. But, but, uh, but yeah, you know, it paid very well for me at that point. And so if you get 100% of something that nobody buys and you get 50% of something that everybody buys, I mean, I'll take the 50%, yeah. you know, so, and yeah, that's the way I worked with that, you know, and, and uh, so, yeah, I, I did some writing that was, that was uh, recorded. The Letterman did, did a, a, a song, Woody Herman. Way back in the day, the Woody Herman and the, and the Herd or whatever it was, uh, I wrote a song called "The Temptation Walk," 
uh, based on the Temptations with the dance they did. Yeah. And then we wrote a dance song called Temptation Walk. And um, so they recorded that. How did that get out? I got, was it your publisher who sold them the idea or was it a producer? Or well, you... we were popular. Okay. So, so they were looking at us and they go, well, this song, and I guess Woody Herman heard it and figured a nice arrangement for it. It was sort of, everybody do the temptation walk. And it was, it was sort of like that, one of those sort of songs. And uh, so, yeah, and the Letterman did it. And uh, the last thing I had released was uh, Kanye West and, and um, Common and all those hip-hop guys uh, did a version of my song, Pretty Balloons. But they changed it to Would You Like to Ride? And did they sample your stuff or not? Huh? Did they sample your music or? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, actually, they they re-recorded it, but they they only used uh, the song was "Would You Like to Buy My Pretty Balloon," but they changed it to "Would You Like to Ride?" Would you like to ride? And that was what they rapped over. But you know, so. They just used the hook. Right. And, uh, yeah. And uh, it was for the Coach Carter movie. Oh, okay. But it got left on the cutting room floor. Oh. It made the, it made the, the CD. It was on the CD, but it wasn't on the, in the movie. But did you get royalties for that? Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah I mean, that was on the, that was, that was legit. You know, and I'll, I will say that, yeah, that was a legit one. But, and Elvis was, was legit, too. So what's what's it like to write a song and then have other people cover it and get heard in a big way? It's it's very nice. I mean, you know, because when you write something that's 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 shown to the world, I mean that that that, that everybody can hear. I mean, it makes you feel good because mm -hmm. you say, "Well, I did something that's that's that has some uh, you know world appeal, worldwide appeal to it," you know, and. Uh, I don't know. It's 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 really hard to do nowadays because yeah, what's a hit single? I mean, I I think they make up records as they go. They don't take songs anymore. It's hard to do. I, I don't really know how recording works anymore. Uh, but yeah, I still write. I'm I'm still with with uh, some friends of mine. We get together and we still do some writing. But who do you give it to nowadays? Who has a record contract and and who? But it's interesting because the the song that you're probably most known for is not a song that you like, and, and I don't even know if you even perform that live anymore. Oh, but, I do. Okay, I do. yeah. Um, but I, I I presume that there's some mixed feelings about it, and yet you've had other hit singles, both of your own, yeah, as well as the people covering the material. Yeah. Now, when I did the album for High Rise Records, I wrote a song called uh, uh, "Put It in a Magazine." And uh, and that was good. It got up to two. It was number two on the on the soul charts mm -hmm. in 1980, 81, 82, somewhere in that era. Marvin Gaye's "Sexual Healing," Sonny Charles uh, uh, put it in a magazine. Michael Jackson's "Beat It." That's the way it was. Michael was third. Not bad company. Okay, a week later, I'm not on the charts. Because the company didn't print any records. Oh. 
the guys who were had the record company was bilking some investor. So they took all the money. They just paid for the recording and 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 did the thing. And then they said, "Hey," they told the guy, "We we lost the money," and so they basically conned this guy. So there was no record sales. So with no record sales, you can't stay on the charts. Hmm. Now, having lived through this, and we hear horror stories about musicians getting ripped off and whatever, but how do you look back on your recording career with, with that in mind? I mean, it's, it must be difficult. That was the reason I, I left L.A. for that reason. I was in L.A. for maybe 10 years, you, you know, Chasing, chasing the rabbit, so to speak. Mm -hmm. You know, trying to get that record deal, trying to get that record deal, trying to get this hit, trying to get this stuff. And, and uh, uh, I was doing demos for people. And, you know, I did the demos for uh, Linda Ronstadt. I did demos for, for I do the demo when they, they drove away in the limo. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh, but, you know, I was, I was surviving, you know, and um, did it ever make you feel bitter? I never got bitter. I never got bitter, but because I just never felt felt that emotion from it. Mm -hmm. I just felt that you know, because there were so many friends of mine who were in the same situation. Right. You know, most of us, very few people succeed. You know, you might look out there and you see them, just a whole bunch of people making records and on TV and all that kind of stuff. But when you go back to how many people are trying to do it. There's very few people succeed, you know. Oh, for sure. And also the people who you actually think might be successful might not be that successful. Do you know what yes, I mean? Yes, absolutely. Mean because by the time I got to L.A. and started trying to do, I put out the Put It In A Magazine album and everything, uh, I was in my 40s. So all of a sudden I wasn't MTV material anymore because I was too old. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, so if you couldn't get on MTV back in them days, the record companies weren't that interested because if, in fact, we can't sell you to the kids, we're not gonna make the money. Right. So there wasn't a, they had an adult contemporary category, but I didn't fit that because my stuff was too R&B pop. And I just fell into that, to that crack in the wall that it just never worked. It was a good album. I did a real good album with them, but, uh, you know, but there were so many of my friends and so many people that I knew that were in that same situation, man. You just go out and do the best you could. And at the same time, we were making a living, uh, you know, playing clubs. Yeah. You know. Because I always wonder what, you know, I mean, you, you started doing this because you love music. And that's yeah. what you did. You sang in the back, on the farm or, you know, whatever. And yeah. then you sang at school. And I, you know, I don't know if you ever lost that passion for music when, when the business could get in the way and just kind of suck it, it you did. dry. But... It did. I pulled out the disco era. Okay. When the disco era came through, there was no nightclub gigs and everything because everybody was doing the disco thing. And and it just got to be... Uh, I was trying to keep a band together. I couldn't keep a band together because I couldn't keep enough steady work. So I just said, hell with it, I'm done. Did you ever think of doing disco or not? Uh, I didn't have a feel for that. Okay. I didn't have a feel for it. That's when the music started changing for me. Uh, disco was was the 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 father of hip hop and all that other stuff, in my opinion. Mm 
Mm-hmm. I might be wrong. But so I went to L.A. I said, I'm out of the business. So I went to L.A. And uh, well, my partner had gone to jail for cocaine. And uh, so I said, OK, I've had enough. I'm just going to get a job. I went and ran out of money. I was homeless for three weeks. Really? But I had a car. And I slept in the back of my car, and, and I'd find a grocery store that was lit. And I'd get in the back seat and cover myself up with my clothes. And did that, did that, did that. And that's when the high-rise record deal came. And they paid me a nice chunk of money up front. So put me back on my feet. And uh, But for three weeks, man, I didn't know what the hell was going on. How did that record deal happen then? Uh, it sort of happened. Here's how it happened. One of my real good friends was Jerry Buss that owned the Lakers. Uh, he was a fan. And he and I hung out a lot. And But Jerry was the type of guy that Jerry wouldn't, you couldn't say, hey, man, Jerry, I'm struggling, man. Uh, loan me a few bucks. He, right. was, he goes, I'll give you a job. But giving you money is not going to help you because right. once you spend the money, you're going to need money. So I'll give you a job. And I said, I don't want to work a concession stand at, at the forum. I don't want to do that sort of thing, man. So, so it's fine, you know. And so I, I got by by uh, delivering phone books, and uh, I have to ask, when when that happened, when you were living in your car, what did you learn from that experience? What I learned from that, I was sitting there and I was saying, and I, I would see the other guys, and I knew I couldn't make my car payment. I knew they were going to take the car if they could find me. So. I was saying to myself, I kept saying to myself, I'm better than this. I'm better than this. I'm not going to accept this. I'm not going to be like the guy that's, on, that's pushing a, a, a grocery cart with everything he's got. Mm-hmm. I'm better than this. So uh, I kept trying to, you know, I'd be in my car and I kept trying to I'd go sing at places. And I'd go do whatever I could, you know. I still had some, you know, I could still sing. And so a friend of mine called me and said, okay, uh, they wanted a voiceover. There was a movie called Skate Town. And they wanted a voiceover for Macho Man. So I did the voiceover from that. And I guess from that whole thing, uh, somebody heard it. But Jerry Buss got together with, with, with this guy who had the high-rise record. So they called me up to do this do this uh do this album and i signed a contract with, within shoot, hours wow and they gave me a nice big uh uh signing bonus and uh back on my feet then you know and and so when that happened at that moment when you when when you signed that contract and give you money what are you thinking i didn't feel it as as a victory i felt it as okay it's the way it's supposed to be like I say, I kept telling myself, I'm better than this. Right. I'm saying, okay, supposed to be. If I was singing good enough to have record deals, I still sing as well, probably better at that point. And so I never lost faith in the fact that that, that my voice was marketable and, and that as a performer that I was marketable. I knew I was that whole time. And... Uh, I wasn't the type of guy that was always in people's faces knocking on doors every day, let me in, let me in. I wasn't that guy, but uh, 
somehow it worked out. Mm-hmm. And I and from that thing, I got on the Dick Clark show. And the funny thing about that is that I had been on Dick Clark in three different decades. He made a point of it. He goes, you were on my show in the 60s, you were on in the 70s, and now you're on again in the 80s. And it was, you know, so I was still hanging in there. I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't getting paid for the records, but I was still hanging in there. <laughs> so you have this hit song that they can't, they don't manufacture enough singles. It is, yeah. And then you decide at that point that you're going to quit. Yeah. Uh, well, no, actually, I had it backwards. I had, I was, I had quit before then. Okay. Okay. And when that finished, I said, okay, I'm going to go back to Vegas. And when I came back to Vegas, it was like uh, I was a fish that was back in my pond again. So you're thinking, I'm going to go do the lounge act again. I came back to do the lounge act again. I got a job and I started working lounges and it was just like, all right. It was fine. I was, I was, I could breathe again. How easy was it to get a to get a gig and then get a band together at that point? Yeah, well, you know what? Uh, I just called up some agents to that. I probably could have did it. I was out of, I was out of Vegas for six years. I was just banging around LA, right. uh, uh, driving a messenger car and, and painting houses and cleaning houses and doing whatever I could to, uh, to survive. Occasionally I'd get a nightclub gig. Just, you know, just living. Because you're fed up with the energy. The thing about that was it was so good because at that point, I'd been living a life where I had agents and, and accountants and, and PR people and everything, and people took care of me. You know, I was I was a commodity that they took care of because they were making money off of right. me. So now I'm out there and it's on me. I got to learn how to survive myself. I've never done that from... And here I was, almost 40 years old, and I'd never really had to to go find my own work and stuff. And so doing that, I mean, I even sold solar panels. <laughs> and, you know, doing that sort of thing, it gave me, said, okay, I know what the world is now. It gave me a real good understanding of how the world works and how I can survive no matter what. I don't have to sleep in my car. You know, I can go get out there and get in it, you know? And that was a real valuable lesson for me. And and what did music mean to you at that point? I still listened to music, but music was changing to, to the point that that uh, I remember going to a thing and the guy saying, uh, no, we need some, we need you to sound like Michael Jackson. And I'm saying, I don't want to sound like anybody. Right. You know, because I came from a time when you had to have your own sound. Right. That's what it was in the beginning. That what made you different. And uh, I said, well, I want you to sound like Michael Jackson. I can't sound like Michael Jackson. I don't want to sound like Michael Jackson. You know, I like their music, but I don't want to be, you know, I ain't trying to sound like nobody but me. And so that was the recording air, uh, business then. But, and I left LA for that reason. I was running into it all the time. And uh, so I came here and started working lounges again. And uh, it's fine, good enough. Got a home and got a got married, raised a son, kept my, you know, got some property and stuff here, and uh, you know, so yeah, it worked out fine. You know, had a lot of experiences. Uh, did the thrill in Manila in in, uh, 
Yeah, that's what I heard. Yeah, yeah did a thrill in Manila, and great experience. Okay, so you, you sang the national anthem, or you sang sang the, the national anthem? Don King and Lloyd Price were starting a record company, so they said, "Okay, we want you to be uh, my group, the Checkmates. We want you guys to be on the record company, so we can bring you over. You guys to do the anthem at the Don King was promoting. You guys to do the anthem at at, uh, at the fight, and that'll be like the preview of the whole thing." that will make the announcement after that. And so we get over there and for some reason, Lloyd Price and Don King seem to be having some difficulties. I don't know if, if with each other or some other situation, but all of a sudden the deal fell through. Hmm. But we were still over there and, and we still did the anthem and- uh, Got to see the fight? Oh, we were sitting ninth row, saw the fight. Uh, after that, we went with uh, Ali to Ferdinand Marcos's palace. We had dinner with Ferdinand Marcos, and they toured us through the palace, played tennis at the uh, at his private club. And I didn't play tennis, but we <laughs> I got out there and ran around. But <laughs> but you know, it's stuff like that. I got to go to the uh, the guy that owned Philippine Airlines had an island. So one afternoon they took us, we stayed there for, we stayed there for two weeks because after the fight was over, we stayed there and we, we worked, you know, we, they kept us there to do, do, do jobs. So we stayed over there and worked for a while. And so we went to this island that the people that owned Philippine Airlines, all I remember his name was Benny. And so <laughs> it was a wonderful trip. Yeah. It was a wonderful trip. Yeah. So you come back to Vegas start your lounge act again and then i guess you partnered up with an old checkmates yeah yeah uh sweet louis right his real name was marvin smith he was he was the guy that had the novelty shop when we first started right. and so we hooked up again and uh we started working lounges here and we made a lounge act of the year umpteen times and we got uh, inducted into the casino legends hall of fame Wow. in 2003 and uh, he passed away in 2007 and uh, after that I was sitting back saying well I guess I might just call it I might just call it and say it's been fun Steve Miller calls up yeah so before you tell me that what was your like how did you know Steve like how did that he just called I met you? Steve there's there's a private club up in Northern California called the Bohemian Club. Uh, it's a it's a very private club, but we'd worked there doing some stuff and I'd done some shows with Steve and he really liked the way I sang the blues. Because a lot of times when you go there and people ask you to sit in, you pick a blues song because everybody can play the blues. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't pick something that's intricate because it's not gonna work. So I was singing Stormy Monday Blues and, and uh, all that sort of thing. And Steve really liked the way I sang. So uh, this is way back in maybe four or five years before he asked me to join him. And uh, so then when he found out my partner died, he goes, man, I didn't want to ask you before because I didn't want to break up your act. So now you want to come out and, and do some shows with me? I said, sure. So. I'd never done rock and roll before. And I was saying, wow, this is, this will be fun. I've never done this before. So it's a new challenge. So 
and, I went and, out, and not just rock and roll, but rock and roll at a very high level. At a very high level. So you know what I'm saying. Now I had, I had already done concerts with with Sinatra and Herb Alpert and his band and all that kind of stuff. So I was familiar with that, with that scene, so to speak. But the Steve Miller thing was totally different. I really love the way it was organized. His organization is just like top notch. Uh, Scotty Bure is the, the guy who runs that whole show and he's just he's a good friend of mine right now uh but i don't know you know steve said i want you to do the blues stuff so here's how we did it he called me to his house up in uh ketchum idaho he's got this great big spread and uh so i go there and he has 500 songs and we're going to cut it down to 50. so I'm sitting there thinking, okay, and I'm, he'd already had the 50 picked already, but he just playing all this stuff to me. I think what he was doing was getting my mind, getting me in tune with blues. Mm-hmm. When I, and how in tune with blues were you? At I that never point? sang blues. <laughs> I sang blues at, at, at jam sessions. Right. I knew Stormy Monday blues and I knew uh, further on up the road. And, that was it. That was my blues repertoire. Because if I sit in with somebody, I do one or the other. Yeah. And uh, so. And, and musically, how did you did you connect with the blues that much, or in your life? I, I guess not. With it. Yeah, I grew up. It was played all the time around me. You know, I really liked Ray Charles back in his blues days. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, drowning my own tears and all that kind of stuff. You know, I really loved those songs. And. Uh, yeah, Bobby Blue Bland and all that. I listened to all that stuff. B.B. King and all those guys. I listened to it, you know. I liked it. I never bought those records, but I liked the music. And and for some reason, I learned Stormy Monday. And because uh, I like the, the chronological thing in it. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I wrote one, a song like that. So, of the w- days of the week. Right. Uh, but, but yeah, so... Uh, I was doing that stuff up there at the Bohemian Club. Steve saw it. He really liked it. Asked me to join him at the Fillmore in uh, San Francisco. I came in and did the one gig. Uh, he goes, I'm recording over at uh, Skywalker Ranch. That's the George Lucas place. Uh, we're going to record these songs. So come up, listen to them. We're going to pick these tunes. He already had the tunes picked. We got there and we recorded 46 songs, I think 46, 47 songs. And the way we did it was I sang lead on all of them. So I didn't know these songs. So what we did, uh, I had everything on cassette. I had cassette tapes. So while they were tuning and doing all this stuff, I would learn the first verse. And the blues, once you learn, once you hear it, Mm -hmm. you know the blues and just getting the lyrics. I had the lyrics in front of me. And so any little intricate part I needed to learn. And I did my own versions of these songs. And it's on the bingo, uh, it's on the, on the bingo uh, CD and it's on the other uh, CD we did after that. Uh, His way of recording lots and releasing it over time. Yeah. Like in, in the past he's done that as yeah. well. But, but you know, the, the thing about Steve was, uh, Steve paid very well. I mean, he pays very well. And so uh, it was just a great experience with him. And so he asked me to join the band. And I said, oh, oh yeah, maybe, you know. 
So he asked me again to join the band. I said, oh, no, he goes, okay. Because he kept saying, join the band and we'll do uh, four or five jobs and see how it works out. And I said, well, yeah, well, I'll think about it. But at this point, you're thinking maybe you're not going to play anymore. Yeah. Okay. And I was saying, the last thing I want to do is I'm not going to audition. If you want me to band, then say, okay, I want you in the band, but don't say, let's do two, two or three gigs. Let me see how it feels. Mm-hmm. No, you know, I don't want to be teased like that. So, uh, so finally he came through and goes, man, I want you to join the band. And it was a handshake. No contracts, none of that stuff. And uh, so we, we agreed on the numbers, you know, and uh, it was fine. It was a fun seven years. It ended, it ended at a point when I was too old to do the travel. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Physically too old to do the travel. It was just like I was just worn out after each one of those tours. Oh, yeah. I mean, even though you travel first class in, in, in an, an outfit like that, yeah. I don't think people realize how difficult touring is. The thing about it was, to me, it was the bus, the rock bus. You know, you have your bunks, and you had, it's, a, it's a full party bus. Everything you need is on there. You get your own privacy of your own sleeping berth and everything, but you're riding like this. Mm-hmm. And 13 hours on that after you finish your show, five minutes after our last note, we're on that bus and we're pulling out of the parking lot because we want to get out before the people come out because we get stuck in traffic. Right. So we run off the stage, get in the bus, we're gone. Now the next job might be three states away. So 13 hours, you're like this. And then you finish that. Uh, you check into a hotel, shower, get maybe three or four hours sleep at the hotel, then you do the sound check at the next place. Next night, eight-hour drive. Then you might get a couple of days off, but you're so tired. I mean, I was just, I'd be pretty much exhausted. I could, I kept saying this, I can sleep, but I can't rest. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but what, would I, would I do it again? Well, I can't do it now. I wouldn't do it now because it's just too tough. It's not worth it. Uh, but, but not, not bad for seven years I addition to, you know, to the point where you said, ah, oh, maybe I'll give up music and then you're touring with But Steve I kept Miller. telling myself, here I am, uh, 70 plus, I was 73, 74 years old black guy singing with a rock band. I'm saying, this is, yeah, I couldn't write this story. No. <laughs> I couldn't make this up. But I, I wonder, you know, I mean, I listen to your life story and then these things happen, whether, I, I, you know, I don't even know how to put it, but these things happen to you. You're, you're living in a car, you're three weeks homeless, and all of a sudden you sign a record deal and you're back on your feet like that. Yeah. You know, um, your partner of many, many, many years, your musical partner passes away. Yeah. I'm sure you're in shock because it happened on a 55 cruise. 55 years. I saw it coming. Yeah. I saw it coming with him. He but still, yeah. you know, you never know. And then yeah. all of a sudden your partnership is gone like that. Yeah. And then you get a phone call saying, join a rock band. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's hard to come up with a plan. Like, this is not planned. But what advice would you give people knowing what you've gone through and the opportunities that you've had I tell I tell people because people ask me now you know come up and go well my daughter wants to get in show business you can, what what do you think about it and I said and I say this if she finds that she cannot 
not do it. If it's so, if it's such a passion to do it, then that's what she should do. But it's a very rough, dangerous game. And the reason I say it's dangerous because the what your e the, the hits your ego takes, and your mentality, and all of the temptations out here. Because one thing I can say, I never had, I never got caught up in drugs and booze. You know, I never. I never went that way. And don't say I didn't try it. I dabbled around with it. I parted with it. But I just never saw any it being something that I wanted to do all the time. And uh, so I think that's one reason I managed to, to hang in there. I, I was pretty much sober. Mm -hmm. You know, I was pretty much sober. And I could recognize opportunities. You know, I kept myself fit enough to when an opportunity came, I could, I could take advantage of it. You know, I, I didn't lose jobs, you know? So, and I, I had, I would say that's probably one of the biggest reasons that, you know, at this stage in my, in my life, I can, I can still work. And you're still working. So you, you're talking yeah. about that gig. With not the as, not as much as, because, I'm at a point now where I don't want to do anything I don't want to do mm -hmm. as far as jobs. If it's a job I don't want to do, I won't do it. And so I do a few things around town. I don't, I don't work that much. I went out and did a cruise ship uh, a couple months back and I said, uh, you know, I thought it would be something that I could do, you know, that would be okay. But it's just sitting out there in a room by yourself, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, what do you do? You go to the buffet five times a day? <laughs> That's about all it was. And, you can bulk up and become Tarzan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so to do the shows and, and, the, and the, the bands are sort of hit or miss if you get a good rhythm section. You know, I mean, the bands are, are international bands. The drummer's from Russia and the bass player's from Sweden and the... And, the keyboard players from Argentina or wherever it is, they're all put together that way. And, and so they never lock mm -hmm. like, like, like I'm used to R and B bands where the bass player and the drummer are just locked in the pocket, so to speak. Uh, you don't get that. But right now in Vegas, if you decide I wanted to do a gig, you could probably put together a pretty decent. Band. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I've been toying with that idea, but I don't know, you know, if I wanted do the band leader thing again. Mm -hmm. So I'd rather do guest spots. I'd rather let somebody else put the band together and everything, and I bring my music in, and and I'll do that. You know, and you know, it's luckily enough I don't. I'm not in a situation where I'm. I have to go do this. I married a very very smart woman who stopped me from spinning everything. <laughs> Yeah, so we managed to we, we managed to, to, to you know set ourselves up to where. Well, that's good. I mean, you've led an extraordinary life. You know, I don't I, know if you see it that way, but from where I sit, you know, it's impressive. You know, I I was telling my wife the other day. I said, you know, from where I started singing on the back of that wagon to where I've been and the things I've done, I, it's great. You know, I mean, I look at it to say. She goes, that's why you should write the book so other people can see that 
that's what where they start from doesn't mean that's going to be where they end. Mm-hmm. You know, you just have to be. And I'm saying, well, I don't know. I, I've started trying to write it myself because every time someone else writes starts writing for me, I stop them and back out of it because they embellish it in a way right. that is not true. If it's not going to be true, you know, it's not a TV show, so don't take creative license with it. <laughs> with your life. Yeah. 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 So, you know, to me, it's, it's, it's very personal. So I'm saying I'll write the basic part of it myself and then have someone else finish it if I ever do it. Well, you should. I mean, I think, I think it, going through that exercise would not be a bad thing because it's, it's a very interesting life. When I do sit down and start doing it, it's sort of fun. And I'll have a burst of energy and I can write nine, ten pages. And then something happens and I get up and leave, you know, and, yeah, yeah. and I never get back to it for two or three months. And then I'll come back and do a little bit more. And that's the way it'll be with me. But uh, so, you know, I have no idea about how to write a book. I'm just writing the stories. Right. I read Maya Angelou's book and her beginning was so much like mine. I was saying in the beginning, I said, she's telling my story, but only from a girl's point of view. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been interesting, though. Well, you know, I really appreciate you taking this time to share your experiences. Cause you know, it's sort of fun doing, reliving that, reliving all those things. Yeah. You know? Well, I thank you. I mean, it's been a wonderful pleasure for me to get to know you a little bit. Well, I sure appreciate you calling me up to do this, you know. Thank you very much. So, great. Enjoy Vegas. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) 